But obviously, it, the, the system won't work if lawyers are allowed to lie to courts. And the, the system sort of relies on lawyers being honest and presenting a case as best they can, providing the benefit of the law for whoever their client is. But the lawyer, him or herself, has to act within those boundaries. Hello, and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and as usual, with us here today is my brilliant co-host, Lester Tate. Good morning, Lester. That's sort of a non-sequitur, brilliant and Lester <laughs> Tate. I don't think those go in the same, uh, same it was, set us together. It was the first word that popped into my mind when I was said <laughs> Lester Tate. He's brilliant. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I, I think you would be the only person that might say that now that my mother is deceased. So, uh, But uh, it's great to be here this morning. And, uh, you know, a little known, little known flat fact about me, I'm a pluviophile. Nobody knows what that means, but it means I love rain. And so this morning as the remnants of Fred uh, roll through Cartersville, Georgia, uh, to sit here and do a podcast and have the rain gently beating outside. It's kind of a nice, uh, nice morning. Well, I, I like rain too, but I don't like to drive through it. I see that you are in your home office, I think. Is that I right? Am. I am. And I, I am. And I drove to my downtown office in just unbelievable rain and praying that I would get here and uh, not flood out. And our guest, Paula, went to her office, which is across the street from my office. Um, so we're thankful she made it as well. Um, today, we're going to be talking about an uh, interesting topic, the General Counsel's Office of the State Bar of Georgia, uh, what it is and what it means. And to help us understand that, we're thrilled to have with us here today the General Counsel of the State Bar of Georgia, Paula Frederick. And it's Paula J. Frederick. Sometimes she goes by PJ. <laughs> To friends, I guess is what my mother would call me. <laughs> well, let me let me tell you a little bit about uh, Paula Frederick. Paula Frederick is the general counsel for the State Bar of Georgia, a unified bar organization with o- over fifty thousand members. That's it just still blows me away. Fifty thousand members of the State Bar of Georgia. As general counsel, Miss Frederick is responsible for interpreting the ethics rules for lawyers prosecuting lawyer discipline cases, and providing legal advice to the officers and directors of the organization. She has served in the office of the general counsel for 33 years and was deputy general counsel for discipline before becoming general counsel in 2009. Ms. Frederick, a 1982 graduate of the Vanderbilt University School of Law and a 1990 graduate of Duke University. Prior to joining the Office of General Counsel, she spent six years as a staff attorney with the Atlanta Legal Aid Society, handling civil legal matters for low-income people. Ms. Frederick is a past president of both the Atlanta Bar Association and the Georgia Association of Black Women Attorneys. 
She is also an active member of the American Bar Association, where she serves as state delegate for Georgia. She sits on the ABA Standing Committee on Bar Activities and Services and recently chaired the Standing Committee on Professional Regulation. In the past, she served on the Commission on the Future of Legal Services, chaired the Standing Committee on Ethics and Professional Responsibility, and the ABA Diversity Center, and served as a member of the Board of Governors. Very impressive resume and very, very impressive career. Paula Frederick, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. And, Thanks so and much. I'm happy to be here. And I'm going to note, I am now on the podcast with two, not one, but two Vanderbilt uh, graduates, <laughs> uh, which, uh, which puts this country lawyer on the low end of the, the <laughs> IQ test here. Well, and then Paula also went to Duke, but we're going to forgive her of that. We still like her. <laughs> Buster ignores the fact that we know that he's got a Georgia Tech degree, so they don't let dummies. No kidding. That. Yeah, no dummies go to Georgia Tech, that's for sure. Well, Paula, welcome. Uh, our listeners would probably realize or surmise that the three of us are good friends, having Lester and I both having been presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and get fortunately got to work with you very closely during that time and and just to uh, see your work. So I'm I'm proud to call you my friend. You know that. Let's talk a little bit about the general counsel's, counsel's office of the State Bar of Georgia. People are probably not really that familiar with it and what it does. Can you talk to us a little bit about the structure of the general counsel's office and some of your duties? Sure. And I think it's it's funny because when I interviewed for the job, I didn't know very much about the State Bar of Georgia or what it does. I was an Atlanta lawyer. I knew about the Atlanta Bar. It was kind of fun and where you hung out as a young lawyer. But the State Bar had been quietly doing its thing all those years without me paying it any attention. And so I think it's possible that a lot of lawyers don't know a lot about the Bar, much less a lot of members of the public. But Georgia is one of 30 some odd states where you have to be a member of the State Bar of Georgia in order to practice law. And so that's why um, two times a year we administer a bar examination for people to take the bar. Once they pass the bar, they have to join the State Bar of Georgia if they want to practice law in this state. So we've kind of got a captive audience um, uh, of this 50 something thousand lawyers in the state. And we have grown really exponentially over the last 10 or 15 years. So all lawyers who practice in the state who who aren't exempt for, or, you know, for instance, for doing federal law only and not doing anything related to Georgia law, all lawyers who practice in the state are members of the state bar of Georgia. Um, they pay dues and we are not a state agency. Another thing that a lot of people believe is that we are part of the state of Georgia and get money, taxpayer money. No, all the, all the money that the state bar of Georgia spends is from dues that its members pay. And so the 50-something thousand members each pay $250 a year in order to practice law in the state. And we fund all the operations of the bar out of that money and don't get any taxpayer money at all. But among the things that we do, I think that the most important thing that we do is that the Supreme Court created the bar to regulate the profession, to regulate lawyers. And so we do that by um, making them take continuing legal education every year to make sure that they, they keep their skills up and keep up with changes in the law. We also um, are responsible for ensuring that they conduct themselves ethically. And so we've got a uh, code of professional responsibilities, rules of ethics that lawyers have to 
abide by. And if they don't, we don't want them to be lawyers anymore in some instances. Um, so, so my office investigates claims that lawyers have done something unethical and prosecutes, ultimately prosecutes um, cases against lawyers who it appears have violated those, those ethics rules, those rules of professional conduct. Um, you asked me a lot of questions there, yeah. Robin. I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> let, let, let me ask you a little more focused uh, sort of yeah. question here. Uh -huh. So, um, uh, you know, I think one, one thing that, you know, lawyers who haven't been involved with the bar a whole lot, you know, if they ever get an inquiry from the general counsel office, general counsel's office that somebody has um, filed a complaint against them, uh, sort of uh, uh, freak out and, you know, don't know what to do and that kind of thing. Similarly, uh, the, the people who make these complaints, you know, sometimes make complaints about things that just really aren't a violation of the Georgia rules of professional conduct. You know, my lawyer didn't win my case. You know, my lawyer, uh, my, my lawyer gave a tough talk to me and I didn't like what he or she, you know, had to say. And uh, I, I, I think, and, and, you know, Robin and I both had the privilege of serving as president of the bar at one time. And when I would talk to groups, I would say, look, I think this system works pretty well. Um, and I know your predecessor, uh, 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 Bill Smith used to say about the bar disciplinary system that uh, we, we, we put our light under a bushel uh, to, to, to quote scripture as Bill was wont to do, you know, from time to time. And uh, I, 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 can you kind of describe for us how that process, how that process works? Sure. I think, um, yeah, I, we don't advertise, but people somehow find us when um, they've got a problem with a lawyer. And so any member of the public opposing counsel, somebody on the other side of a case, anybody can file a complaint against a Georgia lawyer. But when they have a problem with the lawyer, one of the first things that they typically do is contact the bar, um, either by email or phone. Um, the building's been closed for a while, but we used to have a pretty brisk walk-in business too with people just sort of seeing the sign out front and coming on in to see what we do. You didn't but, have a drive-by, um, though, did you? Exactly. <laughs> so we have not resorted to drive-by. We get plenty of business through the routine ways. So, But most often, people call, and they want to know what to do about a lawyer who they're having a problem with. And so for us, the first order of business is the Client Assistance Program, CAP, uh, which just talks to those folks. Um, and it is, as the name says, client assistance. So the cases that we're looking at where it's a client complaining about a lawyer would go there first. Um, they can talk to a paralegal in the office who sort of gets an understanding of what the situation is. And the point of it is to try to weed out the things that you're talking about, Lester, where somebody doesn't like that their lawyer basically told them the truth about the chances of winning a case or that a lawyer oversold a case or, you know, whatever it is, we can tell the client, um, that's not going to be something that violates the rules of professional conduct, but here's some suggestions on how to deal with it. So we spend a lot of time giving clients guidance about improving the communication between them and their lawyer, because most of the time, the problem that they're reporting is a communication problem, or they don't know what's going on with their case, something that, that's pretty easily resolved. But when client assistance hears from somebody with um, a situation that does sound like there's been a violation of the rules, something like, um, 
I got a letter saying from the insurance company saying my case settled last month, but my lawyer hasn't sent me the money or um, I haven't heard from my lawyer for six weeks. I went to court last week and he wasn't there. You know, that kind of thing. Client assistance will direct the person to file a grievance against the lawyer or suggest that that's one of the options. Um, and we've got uh, this, this whole process that starts with the complaining person filing this piece of paper. Um, and before COVID, we were a pretty paper intensive process. We've tried to adapt a little bit to not being able to, um, you know, people can't get to the post office. People, we, the, we're being more electronic now. But there is a form that we require that somebody fill out and sign before we begin an investigation. And it literally says, uh, please state what your lawyer has or hasn't done that causes you to make this complaint. And the person can write out whatever their problem is with the lawyer. So when Lester, when, when Lester's talking about lawyers getting grievances, they literally get a copy of that form in the mail, along with a letter from my office saying somebody filed a complaint against you. Um, you've got 14 days to let us know your side of the story. And the person has to respond to us in 14 days, or we consider the thing without the benefit of their response. I mean, we can't make them respond, but if they don't respond, all we know is what the complaining party has told us. So my office has um, two lawyers and two paralegals and two investigators who make up a screening office after the CAP process is ended, the screening office um, takes in the grievance, sends grievances out to lawyers asking for a response. Usually when we get the lawyer's response, we'll send it to the person who filed the complaint and say, do you have anything else you wanna add after you've read what the lawyer says about what you sent us in the first place? Most often they do, they wanna rebut what the lawyer has said. And then we can ask the lawyer for things that would prove or disprove what the complainant is saying about them. So if it's a money case, um, you know, you're saying you didn't steal the money, send us copies of your bank records so we can take a look and see what's going on. Or um, um, send us a copy of your client file. You're saying you communicated with this person. And once we gather as much as we can through that informal, usually letter writing process, a lawyer in the office looks at the file and decides whether there's any merit to it. And what our rule says is um, if there's any evidence there that would tend to show that the lawyer violated rules of professional conduct, we send the thing on to our disciplinary board. And both of y'all have served on the disciplinary board. You know that routine. Um, the, the board is appointed by the court, the Supreme Court of Georgia and the bar president, 50-50 by those two folks. They're representatives from all over the state and they take a look at these files and make, they're sort of like a grand jury. They make a probable cause determination of whether there's um, probable cause to believe that the lawyer's conduct violated the rules. So well, they can, I, they can, I can tell you what I remember about being on that panel, the investigative panel or the grand jury process was, We'd go to a meeting have and, and look at, I don't know how many files, go through it all day. And I would just race back to my office in Atlanta to fix whatever I'd screwed up on my files immediately. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I better go back. I'd, I'd come back many meetings and check the statute of limitations on everything. It's an eye opener. It scared me to death. A lot of people sit there 
I thought you were going to talk about the reprimands. That, that, that's oh, I hate it. I hated the. I hate it. Well, let's <laughs> talk about reprimands, but I hated those. Well, we were going to talk about um, that the, that board, as part of its duties, can actually impose discipline itself if the lawyer agrees, and um, it's the lowest level of discipline, the two lowest levels of discipline the board can impose itself, where they think, you know, it's a young lawyer who didn't intentionally screw up, um, who they think is a low risk for doing something unethical again. Um, so the lowest levels of discipline are a letter of admonition that this group can send out or these reprimands that I'm um, mentioning. And it really is a very serious thing. I mean, we're laughing about it because it's in hindsight outside of a meeting, just horrible to think about how unpleasant it is. But, I, I, I had to administer a couple of, the, you know, I was the chair, I guess. That's right. You were the chair of the board. Yeah. Years, you know, and it, it, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty, pretty solemn uh, sort of thing, you know, and, and, and just for our listeners, you know, the process is the lawyer has to appear in front of this group that has, I think it had 14 members at the time I was on it. I'm not sure if it's, that's right 18 now, now. Yeah. 18 now. Mm -hmm. And so the lawyer comes in and everybody's sitting in there and you've got this letter, you know, that you, as the chair, you're supposed to read to the folks and, you know, it'd be, uh, uh, you know, you took, you took Joe's money, you know, to represent him. And then you, you didn't show up in court and, you know, whatever had happened in that particular instance. And uh, the person has to appear there and uh, just sort of, you know, stand there and listen, listens to it. And uh, I remember the very first time I went to one of the first meeting I went to, not a reprimand because the reprimands take place at a meeting. So uh, I walk into the place where the meeting was, and there's a lawyer I know there. And I say, hey, how are you doing? What, what are you doing here? Well, I'm, I'm getting a reprimand. <laughs> I was like, okay, I've already put my foot in my mouth once, yeah. once today, you know, but it, it, that, that's the process. Well, I, I can remember being on the panel and having to observe a reprimand. Uh, and all I could, I cringed through. I was so it just hurt me so much to see another lawyer have to be lamb blasted like that. But I cringe throughout the whole reprimand. I hated when we had reprimands. I hated well, that. And you know, the thing, one of the things that's interesting to me is I too, I hate it. And I remember my predecessor, Bill Smith would sort of sit there and glare at the person throughout. <laughs> and I really have a hard time um, looking at, I'm just embarrassed for him, I guess. But it's interesting to me that um, for folks who haven't seen it or been through it, they really sometimes call it a slap on the wrist and it's not. I mean, I think it's significant. I think it's something that, um, you know, if you could be there and see it, you would realize really has meaning. So um, those are the two lowest levels of discipline. But to sort of get back to where I was in the process, this board makes a finding of probable cause and they dismiss most of what they get, but where they make a finding of probable cause, they send the case back to my office and we prosecute a case against the lawyer by um, filing something in the Supreme Court. We file a complaint, just like a regular civil case. We can do discovery, we interview witnesses and ultimately have a hearing um, or work the case out, but have a hearing in the case um, where we have to prove that the lawyer violated the rules of professional conduct by clear and convincing evidence. And um, the, the record in that from the hearing goes up to the Supreme Court and the court enters an order in every disciplinary case where they am either dismissing it or imposing one of the levels of discipline. And after you've got those two lowest, the, the letter of admonition and then the actual 
board reprimand, both of which are confidential. There are um, several levels of public discipline that include a public reprimand. You can be suspended from practice anywhere from a couple of weeks to five years, um, or you can be disbarred, obviously, if the conduct is serious enough. And the, the hearing that you're talking about when your office takes over after applause has been found, that is that um, is that where a special master is appointed and, and how, how does that happen? Yeah. Who when appoints a, a special case, master? When we file a case in the Supreme Court, you know, the court is an appellate court. Now, they're, they're the ones who are in charge of lawyers and the disciplinary process, but they don't want to um, be trial judges and sit around and hear these cases. And so what they do is appoint a, a lawyer with a reputation for ethical practice, a good experienced lawyer with an, a reputation for ethical practice to serve as a hearing officer in the case. And that's, that's what a special master is. We've um, gone to rules in the last couple of years where the court has a, a pool of 20 lawyers who had asked to serve. Um, and, and we're now able, this used to all be volunteer work back when Robin and Lester were, were presidents of the bar, but we've now moved to a system where we're able to pay special masters um, an hourly rate for their time. And I think the real benefit of that has been, um, frankly, things move a little more quickly than they did when it was volunteer work. And then we also just have the benefit of having judges who are more experienced with these rules. And, and it's not the first time judge every single time. So this pool has more than one case at a time. They get experience and understand sort of how these rules work. And that really has, I think, made for a more professional, um, just a, a more professional system in general, which, which has got to be helpful to the public. So one, one thing that uh, I, I think is, I, you know, you, know, you know, analogize the investigative panel of disciplinary board to sort of a grand jury. And then on the other end, you've got the review panel, which is sort of like an appellate court, yeah. uh, which are, are, are you're able to do that to other uh, sections of the law. And one thing that I think is sort of unusual about the bar discipline system is this thing called a petition for voluntary discipline. Um, and, and I'm, I'm going to let you explain what that is. But if you tried to analogize it to some er other area of the law, it would be like uh, some person coming into a superior court and saying, hey, I committed a crime. I want to <laughs> plead guilty without ever having been arrested necessarily or indicted by the grand jury or, or, or whatever else. So could you could you talk <laughs> about that a little? Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but you're right. I guess it is a little bit unusual. Um, and maybe it is just the threat of ultimately being caught and um, that, that makes people want to confess before we even know about the misconduct sometimes. But a petition for voluntary discipline, you know, any lawyer who is willing to admit that they violated the rules some kind of way is able to just let us know. They report themselves, just like Lester said. And um, it's everything from, uh, you know, usually, obviously, it's somebody who's sorry about what they did. And so I think the benefit of a petition for voluntary discipline versus just waiting to see if the bar is going to figure things out is it's a sign of good faith. It's a show that you screwed up, that you didn't mean to screw up. In my mind, it means you're unlikely to screw up again. Um, and so people get a, a reduced level of discipline quite often if they have 
um, filed a petition for voluntary discipline. So, our, you know, our rules kind of rely on lawyers complying with the rules, other lawyers and clients telling us when somebody's broken the rules. But, you know, if, if you know that you've, you've done something wrong, um, just to sort of admit it and say, I'm sorry, I get it. Can I go on with my life or whatever is, is a good way to deal with it. We see it a lot, frankly, for lawyers who are suffering from a drug or alcohol addiction and trying to deal with that. Um, and if you're in a sort of 12-step program or a program where you're in recovery, um, one of the things that they want you to do is get rid of all that baggage from your past by dealing with it and moving on. And so I think it's helpful for the lawyer. Obviously, it's helpful for any client who was harmed by any of this. And um, a lot of our cases end up being voluntary um, petitions for voluntary discipline or even voluntary surrenders of license when a lawyer has done something that's going to get him or her disbarred. Like um, if you've been convicted of a felony, for instance, you're going to lose your license. So you may as well surrender it through a petition so, for voluntary discipline. So uh, Paula, one other thing, and you, you specifically mentioned sort of mental health issues there, you know, when you're talking about drug and alcohol impairment. Um, and, and, and there's another one that is we have a sort of aging population that seems to come up more and more. And I, I, I don't think when I, I was on the uh, investigative panel uh, before I was on the Judicial Qualifications Commission, it was just a few years later, it seems like I, and I think maybe, you know, the, the average population of, the, of judges is older than lawyers, you know, but it seems like we had more cases that involved some kind of, uh, uh, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, aging, competency problems that popped up that uh, uh, were, th you know, really through no fault of the, the, the person that had them. And, and I, by the way, let me be clear, I, I realize addictions are not something, you know, that can be controlled, right. you know, either. But uh, as we've got an aging bar, uh, what, what tools and uh, how is the bar uh, trying to handle those issues where uh, folks just really have, you know, maybe been a great lawyer and then they have an issue uh, a mental health issue that does not really render them competent to practice? This, this is a work in progress. And it's one of the things that is really heartbreaking about the job that I do. I mean, you, you will see people who have had distinguished careers who um, are suffering from some sort of age-related impairment, but who don't want to stop practicing law. And um, I used to think it was a man thing, frankly, that, that men just never wanted to retire. They're so tied up in their um, identity as a lawyer that for them sort of hanging it up really is a, an end of life thing or maybe admitting that they're not immortal or something like that. But we see it equally from women now that we've got enough women of sort of my generation who are, who are over 60 and in the practice of law. Um, it, we have really wrestled with how to deal with those situations. And what we find is that people around the lawyer will see the signs and know that something's going on, but they are either unwilling to deal with it. And it's not easy for anybody to deal with, but um, they sort of let it go on too long until the lawyer basically commits a, something, a ball falls out of the air or they miss a deadline or, um, they have some sort of episode in court if they're suffering from something like Alzheimer's where they have, um, 
you know, lucid intervals, but then all of a sudden they have no idea who their client is. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking stories and people, even clients are reluctant to report a lawyer because they know the lawyer's reputation and that the lawyer's been a good lawyer. So we've tried a couple of things. Um, we've got a lawyer assistance program that offers um, counseling to lawyers and lawyer staff and lawyer family members sometimes um, to help guide them through the process of easing somebody into retirement if they need to retire. We've also got a senior lawyers committee that has um, pretty recently unveiled this whole secession planning um, document on our website that helps people both with sudden health emergencies and with secession planning. And so we've, we've also put on our dues notice a little um, checkoff that says, you know, if you're in private practice and something happens to you, please designate a successor lawyer who would take over your practice if you got hit by a MARTA bus or, you know, you suddenly got sick and were not able to practice. And we've had a lot of lawyers um, go ahead and designate a successor. But I, those, frankly, are the easy ones. I do think the harder ones are the ones where the lawyer, him or herself, can't acknowledge that it's time to stop practicing. And, and this is, it is happening more and more, Lester, as uh, the bar ages. And we really aren't able to deal with it um, except through the disciplinary process for the most part. Now, we, we did recently come up with a retirement status that I'm not sure, I don't think it has even been approved by the court yet, but we have a rule change pending um, where you can call yourself retired um, and we're just encouraging folks to retire if there's some reason that you should, rather than just keep going until somebody makes you stop. So uh, I, I want to put you on the spot for a minute, but before I put you on the spot, I, I, I want to be clear, certainly not asking you, you know, the, you know, the disciplinary process starts out confidential uh, because it's not a way to, to, to touch a lawyer up with, uh, with bare allegations that have nothing behind them. And, and so I, I understand there's a confidentiality aspect. So I, I want to be clear, not asking about any specific case here. But, um, you know, we've been through a pretty rough political season where there's been a lot of litigation over elections and things like that. And uh, I, I think one of the things that the public may not sometimes understand is uh, that there's a difference between a lawyer making a political statement that uh, is maybe has unpopular sentiment or, or is politically incorrect, if you use a, a broader term. And there's uh, some cases about that, like this uh, uh, in the judicial context, Republican Party of Minnesota versus White that the US Supreme Court decided on First Amendment grounds. And then there's a difference between going into court and making claims that are just verifiably false or which you make and then are able to produce no evidence. Can, can you talk about that sort of distinction a little bit there and wh where the bar can go on certain issues and where they can't go on certain well, issues? Yeah, sure. And we see this a lot now with um, social media. Uh, lawyers are people. <laughs> and so they get to be um, people like everybody else. They can have their thoughts, whether we agree with them or not is, you know, it's not my business. So um, what we have typically said with 
the rules of professional conduct and the way that we govern lawyer conduct is we govern your conduct as a lawyer. And we don't govern your conduct as a regular old citizen of these United States or um, somebody who's got their own opinions about politics or anything else that's going on in the public arena. And so as long as what you are doing is done in your personal capacity, none of my business, but if it is done in a professional capacity, if it is done um, while representing a client or um, somehow has to do with your status as a lawyer, then it becomes subject to these rules of professional conduct and it is something that the bar is going to pay attention to. So in your personal life, pretty much what you do has to be a crime for it to become something that, that I would be interested in. And other than that, you're entitled to your opinions and people disagree. That's why lawyers have jobs. But um, if you as a lawyer, I mean, lawyers obviously are obliged to tell the truth when they go into court. But obviously, it, the, the system won't work if lawyers are allowed to lie to courts. And the, the system sort of relies on lawyers being honest and presenting a case as best they can, providing the benefit of the law for whoever their client is. But the lawyer, him or herself, has to act within those boundaries. And um, you know, the rules do require that lawyers not make false statements um, to courts. And so we will prosecute that as a violation of the rules of professional conduct, no matter what your political leanings are, you know, that none of that matters. And, and courts have to be able to rely on lawyers being truthful in their dealings with the court. You know, we've got this great system, this great system of justice, but it doesn't work if you don't um, play by the, the rules. So that's where I am on that. When, when that happens, is it who, who typically reports that to the bar? How does the state bar get involved? Can judges report behavior that they find to be a, a lawyer just blatantly lying in front of the court? Yes. And probably um, those cases come to us in two different ways. Judges report things to us all the time. Um, and quite often, as they enter an order, finding that a lawyer has either um, lied on purpose or withheld something or you know not shown up in court, whatever it is, if it has to do with the judge, typically the judge is going to let us know about it by sending a copy of an order that they enter to the bar and asking us to investigate. And so they'll, they'll hold the lawyer in contempt or they'll find that there was no merit to something or they'll find that the lawyer misrepresented something. And as they make that finding, they say, and send a copy of this order to the bar for investigation. And we look into it that way. The other place, Robin, that you probably would naturally realize is the source of some of these complaints is the other side. Whoever it is on the other side um, can file a grievance as well. And sometimes they do. I think a lot of times lawyers are reluctant to file grievances against opposing counsel and I can understand that, but um, you know we're a self-governing profession. We've got an obligation to protect the public, and I we encourage, frankly, we encourage lawyers if they know about a violation of the, the rules by another lawyer to let us know so we can investigate just to protect the public. Let, let, let me ask you about that for a moment because there, there's sort of a euphemism. Uh, uh, amongst uh, lawyers, particularly lawyers that 
work in the bar area, you know, called a rat rule. <laughs> and, and, you know, the rat rule means that if you know of another lawyer that has uh, violated the uh, professional canons, professional ethics, you, you are duty bound to report them or something can happen to you. And I have seen uh, various uh, incarnations of the so-called rat rule. And again, I use that euphemistically because I, I do think we have a, a, a role to play in upholding the profession. But for example, I think under Georgia law, or Georgia's uh, rules of professional conduct, it requires you to report uh, to an appropriate authority. So you, you, if you're, you may tell the judge about it. If it's a big law firm, you may call the managing partner about it. And if you don't do that, then you're subject to maybe a public reprimand or I, it's a very low level of discipline. In contrast, I've, I've had some cases coming out of like Illinois and uh, in Illinois, the so-called rat rule is you have to report this person that you think violated the rules of professional conduct to the disciplinary authority who can disbar them. And if you do not, we can disbar you and uh, so I, I've actually had cases where in Georgia, if I were consulted about it, I'd say, well, you know, you've got an obligation to tell somebody in, in authority. But, you know, in Illinois, you know, it's, it seems like it would create just a, an abundance of bar complaints with people trying to cover their own rear end. Although there are probably some of our listeners think, well, yeah, if a lawyer knows something's going, going wrong, they ought to report it. What, what do you think the right balance is on that? Well, the Georgia rule actually doesn't carry any disciplinary penalty. And we deliberately talked about it um, within the committee that was looking at the, the, our rules are based on the American Bar Association's model rules of professional conduct, as are Illinois. And, but in, but in the model rules, um, it's just as Lester said, uh, you violate the rules if you don't tell of a violation on the part of another lawyer. Um, and it, it's weird. I mean, they've got some case law that really scares people. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Georgia committee declined to adopt the ABA version of the rule. Um, but I, I think there's got to be a balance there somewhere. And, and unfortunately, I mean, before I came to the bar, I would have said, you know, nobody likes a tattletale. You're not supposed to rat out your, your friends or colleagues or whoever. But just looking at it from the perspective of protection of the public, I can also point to a couple of situations where everybody knew that something was going on that was unethical in somebody's law practice. Nobody wanted to tell. And, you know, more money went missing or, or more clients got harmed or something like that. So, you know, I, I guess I would favor a rule um, that required some sort of um, some sort of report, depending on how serious the misconduct was. And you know that that if I got to determine, <laughs> I could do it. But yeah, I, that it, that just doesn't work, in well, other I, words. And so I, I, I'm I'm not unhappy that we don't have that rule, frankly. I, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm gonna let Robin get a question in edgewise here in a minute. I'm not trying to monopolize <laughs> you here and I apologize, but I, as you, as you're talking, I think of something else and, uh, you know, we've had several, I would say pretty high profile lawyer theft cases, uh, here in Georgia where lawyers and, and, and to me, you know, you know, and 
Lester's Inferno, the lowest ring of hell is for those who cheat their clients. You know, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I, I'm out there. But we've had several high profile cases like that that involve people going to the federal penitentiary. You know, um, we've also seen that on a national scale. You know, if you go on Hulu right now, there's The Hustler and The Housewife, which uh, details uh, the story and uh, whether it's accurate or not, I don't know. It's it's television, but uh, of uh, you know the uh, Tom Girardi, uh, who uh, is uh, was a well-known lawyer, was actually president of a couple of organizations that I'm a member of. Uh, you know, prior to this happening, uh, was involved in the case uh, that many of our listeners probably saw portrayed on the silver screen, Aaron Brockovich, and that kind of thing. So, do you think that lawyers stealing from their client is something that's on the increase or is it something that's just getting greater scrutiny and, and, and just sort of being, you know, the wrong that they've done being brought into the light? I, I hope it's not on the increase and I don't have any reason to believe that it is. I do wonder if media is um, sort of making us more aware of situations like that. And that case is just, bizarre for a number of reasons, but, um, you know, we, we do see cases where lawyers are stealing money to just support a lavish lifestyle. And frankly, I feel like we saw more of them back in the eighties when the, the, the whole drug, the cocaine, um, epidemic was kind of rampant and, people were trying to live like Miami Vice or something like that. <laughs> I, just, I really didn't feel like, like um, it, we saw more of that back then, but we do every year or two just see some brazen, greedy stuff going on where, you know, you're funding your private plane to your private island. To, and it really, it, it shocks me every time. I don't know why I'm so naive, but yeah, I've been following that Girardi case as well. And um, there were, it, it seems to me that there were red flags all over the place. And well, once it came, you know, the bar is being criticized in California for um, supposedly ignoring warning signs and not investigating the way that they should have. For us, um, you know, it's, it's hard because we are a system that relies on a grievance coming in. And what he was doing apparently is borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And so if he had a client pressing him about money, he'd take somebody else's money and shut them up and hope, you know, try to settle something um, before that person realized that their money was, was overdue. And so it is possible to juggle that way and not get caught for some period of time, because I think we rely on a check bouncing. And if nothing bounces for a time, um, you could probably get away with it for a little while. But no, I don't, I hope it's not on the rise, my God. I think people have been, um, lawyers have been hit by COVID as badly as everybody else. And so there are lawyers who are really struggling. And sometimes we, we can um, relate that to these theft cases. Um, but I don't think we're seeing any more of them than we normally do. I, I also wonder, Paula, whether we talk about social media and online presence. So many lawyers obviously are, are using that to market their, their firm and their services. 
But I also wonder with some of these names that that of lawyers that are are nationally known, but then get in trouble. Um, are they are the is it giving them a sense of, of uh, overwhelming power or fame to the point they feel like they might be able to get away with something they can they can do no harm. They can get away with whatever they want to because I'm nationally known and uh, everybody loves me, that sort of thing. Thanks to social media. Well, you know, I've never taken a psychology class in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't keep me from having theories about all this stuff. <laughs> you, you have a lot of experience, though. I with have it. a lot of experience with lawyers and ego. Um, I think you're right, Robin. I, I do think there's something about it, um, you know, that, that you've got 50,000 friends who um, don't know you but love you. You know, there appears to be something that that kind of gets lawyers excited about that kind of thing. And Robin, you know, I have used you before in CLE programs as my favorite <laughs> example of a lawyer all over social media, but doing it the right way. And it, it cracks me up because if you had come to me and said, should I have this one Facebook page for myself and my business? I would have said, no, you got to have two separate. You can't you can't mingle your own personal life with your practice and you've done it successfully. For years <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, you, you comply with the rules. You, you post things that are true. It's not about how many people follow you and all of that stuff. It really, I think is more about educating people about the law. And, and at the same time, marketing your services. So if I go out here and do get hit by that Marta bus, I'll think of Robin Clark because, because she's right across the street or I whatever. Hope so. So, I hope so. Um, but, but social media is, um, it, I, I think, dangerous in, a lot, in some ways because it does um, sort of lure people into thinking that it's real life. <laughs> it just can't be. It isn't. And, and they think it, it's more meaningful, perhaps, than it is. I, I got a lot of theories about it. But, but yeah, I do think it is one way that lawyers can stoke their egos and um, believe themselves to be above the law. Yeah. Talking about social media, let me touch upon a subject that you and I have had many conversations about and Jenny Middleman have about when a client or former client or somebody, not even a client, but somebody knows you, post something on social media derogatory about you as a lawyer um, and whether the lawyer has a right to respond to that. Um, and you can say, well, if if it's a client, there are there are rules that apply to what you can say. If it's not a client, I guess there are other rules that apply. Um, it has always bothered me. I know the, the general counsel's office had a case involving this once, but it has bothered me that if a, a former client can say something that is not correct online that may damage my reputation, but I, I guess I really, I can't respond to that, right? Well, you can't reveal any confidential information about them or their case if you do respond. And so your hands are, are tied to some extent about what you can say. But... Um, we're actually seeing less of that, I would say, in the last year or two than um, in the previous five or 10 years. And we, we did have a bunch of cases. There's only one public case, but we get cases all the time about lawyers responding to negative criticism and saying stuff that is confidential in their response. And so people have kind of learned to deal with that 
by these really generic responses that I think are nonetheless effective, saying things like, you know, I disagree with this um, assessment of how I handled your case, but the rules of professional conduct require me to keep your secrets. So I can't really fully respond. And then sort of trying to take it offline because mm -hmm. um, it's never really a good idea to fight with somebody yeah. in public. And so <laughs> if right. you can, please call me and we can talk about this um, some more. And you know, you come across as dignified, you come across as ethical, you're not gonna sling mud with them on Facebook or whatever. And um, I think people respect that. So, um, I, I, and the public is becoming more accustomed to um, reading these reviews and taking them with a grain of, of salt. So hopefully it's not creating problems um, with lawyers. I've read somewhere that if there isn't anything remotely negative um, in the reviews that people are getting, they're going to think that they're all manufactured reviews anyway, that you paid for them or something. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have a, a instance on my Google My Business, which I've learned what that is now, um, <laughs> where a fake person put a fake review uh, on my whatever, my Google, my business thing. And um, and then all of a sudden, a company from Boca Raton, Florida calls me, says, hey, we see a negative review, but if you pay us a thousand dollars, we'll get it taken off. And they put the negative review there. <laughs> they exactly. And I've I've accused them of doing that and filed a better business bureau uh, complaint against them. And then you call Google, my business and they can't they won't remove it. So really? there, there is a cottage industry of putting false reviews on professionals' websites and then black getting blackmailed by a company that put it there to get it taken off. And I, I that Lester, that that may be our next class action. Let's let's be thinking about how we can make that work. OK, I think I'm, I'm gung ho for that. I'm, I'm fired up about it still. Even talking about it makes me mad. I think, <laughs> I, I think the only thing I'm worried about is if your business is so bad, you have to go out there and plant fake reviews to get hired. <laughs> how much money are we going to get back out of that thing? You know, at the end of the at the end of the day, you know, there's yeah. that. Uh, I'll That's tell you something else funny that I just thought of as we were talking about what gets lawyers in trouble. I practice law with a, a wonderful, wonderful human being for a while, Larry Jewett. You may remember Larry, Paula, but um, he's retired now. But his view of ethics was, and he said this many times, uh, don't lie, cheat or steal, and everything else is a knife fight. <laughs> <laughs> That was kind of his his standard that he went by. Well, I, I kind of related to the um, Ten Commandments, you know, lying, stealing, stealing, cheating, you know. But but I do think as much as anything, it's greed that gets folks into trouble. Um, so or, 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 the, or the greatest commandment doing to others as you would yeah. have them doing to you. You know, if you if you go to seek. Uh, you know, even with things like confidentiality, if you go to seek uh, guidance from a professional right. and the professionals out there talking about it, that that's not something you'd want. So why would you do it? You know, right. for for, for right. somebody else. My my other mentor, Steve Cotter, when I was very young lawyer, that he he we got together when I this is in the early nineties, and he said we're going to practice law by the golden rule, and that's the way. If you conduct yourself that way, then you really are not going to have any problems. I think absolutely. Good advice. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit, Paula, about we, the mandatory bar versus a voluntary bar. 
We know because you've told us that the Georgia State Bar is is mandatory. If you want to practice law in the state of Georgia, you must be a member. Um, and that includes judges as well. They have to be a member of the state bar. Um, but there are other states that that is not true, right? They don't have to be a member of a state bar. Um, and I don't know which states are which or how many, what's in the majority. Um, do you have an opinion on what works better? And, and tell us a little bit about that. Why? Yeah, there's a, there actually are a bunch of lawsuits right now over whether lawyers ought to be required to be members of a mandatory bar organization. And um, there's, I think the Texas one and the Louisiana ones maybe got resolved, but there's one in Oregon. California recently deunified its bar. It had been mandatory like Georgia, and it voluntarily split itself into a mandatory bar and a voluntary bar. And so there are lots of jurisdictions that do it differently from how we do it in Georgia, but the majority of states are mandatory bar states right now. But in the places where there are lawsuits pending, the lawsuits are about um, some of the things that the mandatory bar does that members disagree with. And, you know, unfortunately, from my perspective, a lot of those things are the fun things, the things that I think make me proudest to be a lawyer, like um, the bar's focus on um, helping poor people and being sure that they get adequate legal services. Um, the bar focuses now on diversity efforts and making sure that um, diverse people have the opportunity to become lawyers and then that they have uh, um, good success as lawyers but there are people who don't agree. It goes back to what Lester was asking me about with um, politics, some of it, but some of it's just personal opinion about if, if you're gonna force me to pay $255 a year to belong to this organization, I don't want my money spent on these things that I don't agree with. So we've never taken political positions. I mean, obviously we can't support candidates for judge or something like that as an organization, but we have engaged in um, activity like things designed to promote diversity, things designed to promote access to justice for poor people that some people don't think are appropriate for a mandatory organization. And that's what the, the lawsuits are about. Um, you know, I, it's in places where the bar is deunified, the Supreme Court of the state or the legislature or somebody sets up this separate entity to regulate lawyers. And I think that one of the funny things about it from my perspective is in every single one of those jurisdictions, it costs more for the regulatory thing than it does for us, the 255 that we pay for the state bar in Georgia. So ironically, I think if we are deunifying, it's gonna cost lawyers more um, to fund the regulatory system just on its own than it's costing them right now. So if it's about money, that's not a good reason, but, but it's also apparently about um, the, the the current wave of lawsuits is about freedom of association, that people just don't want to be associated with an organization that does some of the things that that these mandatory bar organizations are doing. And that's a harder claim to deal with to me because um, it isn't about the money. It's about the fact that we want to say the State Bar of Georgia supports indigent legal services. And um, if you're a member, you're going to be lumped into that category, whether you want to be or not. 
So, you know, I've never experienced a system other than the one that we've got here in Georgia. I do think it works well. Um, I do think it's got more bang for the buck than anything you're going to set up otherwise. And um, I, I, I don't know. I, maybe I just am opposed to change. I think we'll figure it out if the Supreme Court says you, you can't do it this way anymore. But there's going to be a case at the U.S. Supreme Court in the next few years that's going to make that decision. And if it does deunify us, then the regulatory part, the, the lawyer discipline part um, that we do at the state bar now would probably just be done out of an office at the Supreme Court like but, bar admissions is. Who, who funds that? If deunified, who funds the discipline process? Well, I think we could still charge lawyers a regulatory fee, but, you know, we'd become probably a state agency. And so taxpayer dollars, taxpayer dollars and lawyer fees, I mean, or, or I, I don't know, I think that would be up in the air as well. So it's, um, you know, it, it it's, would be a shame in many ways to me because of all the good that the State Bar of Georgia does. But we, we, we all know, uh, too. We all know, too, that the, the United States Supreme Court, you know, one of the one of the uh, repeated things you get pelted with if you're president of the state bar is about lawyer advertising. You know, <laughs> and and for, um, you know, most of the history of the state bar, you didn't really have lawyer uh, advertising. It was against the law to to do that. And then the Supreme Court says, oh, yes, under free speech, you can. And so there's not anything that the bar you know can do about that. But I want to I want to specific I want to zero in on one of your other roles that Robin alluded to earlier, because I actually think, uh, uh, Paula, that you are in one of the most unique positions of anybody that I know uh, any place in the United States to sort of observe the difference between mandatory bars and voluntary bars, because in addition to being the general counsel for a mandatory bar, as Robin said in your introduction, you've just completed a term as a state delegate. Uh, for the uh, with the American Bar Association, which for our listeners is a voluntary bar, um, you know, Melvin Belli got kicked out of the ABA one time, and some folks thought that he couldn't uh, practice law anymore. But it was tantamount to being kicked out of the Book of the Month Club. You know, it's, <laughs> it has no licensure, you know, involved with it. That's right. Um, but you're very active in that, and of course, I've I've been privilege to serve with you in the ABA House of Delegates, but I don't know of any other Georgian except with the possibility of Linda Klein, and that's only a possibility, <laughs> and she was president of the ABA that's been more involved in that. So the ABA is able to take positions on contested political issues. They rate the qualifications of judges on merit, I think, not on their politics, but they take all manner of, of uh policy uh, positions. And uh, these resolutions that we vote on in the ABA House, you know, urge state and local governments and courts to, you know, increase diversity, defeat tort reform, all, all, all manner of stuff. Yeah. Uh, all those resolutions, as you know, are usually worked out and, you know, they all usually pass. And when you and I were in the House of Delegates last week, we had one that did not pass. I don't know if you recall that. I, I can't a, remember which one it was, but I do well, recall. A group got together. I, I don't know. I don't know who started this, but they had a resolution that in order to uh, that they wanted the Department of Agriculture, the United States Department of Agriculture, 
to put in uh, livestock management principles uh, that would discourage certain risky livestock practices uh, in, in relation to giving disaster loans or disaster payments to people's livestock that got destroyed. And I think it's the first time I've ever seen the ABA House vote down, you know, that it was just too far outside the outside the practice of law, you know, unless you're, you know, uh, the only lawyer I know that would, uh, it would affect is Roy Barnes, who has a cow farm in my ancestral county of Cedartown, Polk County, you know, but with, with the voluntary bar associations where you don't have the strictures that you have with the mandatory bar, do you really think everybody's entitled to our opinion as lawyers on issues <laughs> as far-fledged as livestock and global I, warming and, and that kind of thing? Absolutely not. I, mean, I think lawyers are good, smart people, but we don't know anything about livestock management. And I'm, I'm with you. It was, it was one of those where it's like, well, you know, if we were even talking about drafting laws or, you know, something that you could latch onto and say, okay, this is the lawyer role in all of this. But it really was kind of, it, it sounded to me at least um, like a judgment about um, who ought to get relief money and who ought not get relief money. And, and the house just said, no, this is not our business. Um, we need to leave it alone. And it was kind of a surprise. There was only one speaker against it, but she made a great argument pointing out that this just isn't, something that our expertise is needed in. And I, I think for most of the stuff, it, it's funny because um, the American Bar Association, I think is gonna start letting more um, questionable, questionably relevant resolutions come before the house and let the house decide whether it's relevant or not, like it did in that instance. I mean, a lot of times things get weeded out before they even get to the floor by people who say, ah, that's not relevant, we're not going to bring it up. But, you know, let, let the group decide whether it's relevant. Do, do you think, don't, don't you think, I'm going to ask a leading question here before I <laughs> can object, she wants to, but don't you think that dilutes the voice of the profession? You know, when I think about, uh, you know, we have ABA approved law schools, you know, they, that, that means something, that brand yeah. means something. Uh, you know, the American Dental Association, you know, approves certain toothpaste, I think, you know, and when the American Medical Association gives guidance, you feel like it's professional guidance that's coming from a body of professionals. And so, you know, we're talking about, you know, how to keep your cows and pigs alive. You know, it just, I think it dilutes our voice. Yeah, it does. And it's something that people can point at when they say that we're an overly political, um, you know, organization. I, th I think the ABA gets a, a rap sometimes for being um, left-leaning and uh, dealing with issues that are none of its business. And that certainly is one instance. And of course, I mean, I think anytime you, you say too much, you have diluted um, the value of what you say where you really need to be talking. And that's probably the problem there. But it was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and and just to give our listeners the stark difference between between that sort of resolution with the American Bar Association, a, a, a voluntary bar association versus things that the state bar of Georgia votes on through their representatives, 
the the state bar always has a vote that it's germane number one germane to the practice of law and then two whether we should support support it and things like you're talking about that we do support are um equal justice and equal justice initiatives or um the resource center that that um represents folks on death row those, those sort of kind of absolutely germane to the practice of law having nothing to do with livestock or or pit bulls once i i remember american bar association had a resolution about um uh, discriminating against dog breeds and specifically pit bulls i'm like i i'm out of here i can't do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah there there have been some strange ones through the years i will admit that um anyway but no i think that is one of the the luxuries i guess of being a voluntary bar is that they can they can attempt to take on whatever they want and they may run members off in droves with it and i think that's the danger lister so uh, one of the things that uh, that we, we do we, we we don't fly completely blind robin robin always sends a little checklist of things to talk about and and I usually ignore it and go off on a tangent. And uh, she's kind enough not to call me out on it, as I've done several times today. But I'll get back on track a little bit. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about solicitation, you know, and, and uh, we're really more about advertising than, than about solicitation. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I think about solicitation, I think about that scene and the verdict where, the, the guy, Paul Newman, you know, who plays the lawyer, shows up at the funeral home and tells the widow, I'm so sorry, the guy's killed in an industrial accident. I'm so sorry for your loss. Here's my card, if I could ever be of assistance, you know, sort of thing. And they throw him out of the funeral home. Uh, tell us what solicitation is, what the rules are that govern that. Uh, and uh, uh, Robin's listed one of her pet peeves. I'm, I'm interested to hear her or follow up with her experience on that too. So yeah, that solicitation really is just a lawyer through some sort of in-person communication, asking somebody to hire them. And it can be by telephone, live telephone contact or in-person contact. And we prohibit it. The rules say you, you can't ask for business from a client that way. Um, it's okay to talk to other lawyers like that or somebody who's a former client, but when you're out trying to get business, you can't solicit it through in-person communication. And we have seen situations like that one in the verdict. We, we had a, um, after the value jet crash down in Florida many, many years ago, um, you know, there was a lawyer supposedly hiding on the, in, in the bathroom on the big trailways bus that was taking family members down to the, the crash scene. Oh my you know, gosh. Lawyers um, sneaking into hospital rooms to try to get people to sign them up after an accident, that kind of stuff. And the rules prohibit it really because of what my coworker, Jenny, who Robin alluded to earlier, um, says she calls lawyer superpowers that, that, you know, lawyers are supposed to be trained in advocacy and be super persuasive. And um, it's unfair then to unleash the superpower um, persuasiveness on a regular member of the public and where that person is going to feel pressure you want them to feel pressure that person's going to feel pressure to hire the person who's standing in front of them as their lawyer and that the decision ought not be a pressure-filled decision that it ought to be something that the client can do more thoughtfully and dispassionately and without feeling any pressure 
at all. And so we prohibit lawyers from in-person solicitation and say instead, you know, any, if you want to send them something in writing, you can do that. Um, but it shouldn't be about, you know, I'm the first person who got to the accident scene and I'm in your face and you're scared not to hire me. Um, so the rules prohibit it. It's a hard thing to regulate just because um, obviously the, the problem comes when somebody is in person soliciting. And most of the time there's no record of, of how that happened, what was said, um, and people's recollections differ. So we have real mixed success on those cases because they're hard to prove. Unless the runner keeps a log, well, <laughs> which, yeah. which has happened in certain cases before. Yeah, we had somebody who was paid to solicit business on behalf of a lawyer one time, and uh, that, that's against the law and against the bar rules. And the, um, the, the person who was paid, the, the runner, as we call him, um, kept this beautiful record of how much the lawyer paid him for every case that he got. And so once the, the runner provided that to the bar, the guy was prosecuted. I think by the feds, um, he was he, the lawyer was prosecuted um, criminally and we prosecuted a disciplinary case. So sometimes you're right, the evidence falls into your lap, but most of the time it's kind of a he said, she said, you don't even know who you dealt with. Somebody turned up in my hospital room and got me to sign this guy up. I don't know who it was. You know, they're, they're just really hard cases. So my, my pet peeve area of solicitation uh, is what's known as geofencing. We've talked about, you and I, Paul, have talked about it before. Um, and geofencing is when a lawyer pays for internet boundaries on a, at a particular place so that his or her website comes up when a potential client is in that, that fence, that internet fence. And what we're seeing is they're fencing around places like Grady Memorial hospital emergency room so when there's been a bad car wreck um and the loved ones worrying whether their loved one in a car wreck is going to survive and they're sitting in the er all of a sudden a lawyer's website pops up saying i handle really really bad car wrecks um so we know if a lawyer did that in person sat in the emergency room and walked over to the grieving person oh did your loved one just die in a car wreck here's my card but now they do it through internet geofencing, um, which I don't know why that's not solicitation. But but apparently we there are there is there are either some cases on it or some guidance that says no well, that's, that's that's okay not in person. Yeah, yeah. I, you know it, it really does come down to that distinction that I was talking about whether it's something where um, there's this this pressure from an in person contact. And something like that is kind of like an ad, a banner ad running in, on, along the bottom of your TV screen or something that you can ignore if you want to. And so we haven't found that that's the same as in person. The, 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 the pressure's different, I guess. You know, and the other, the, these rules, I think, do a pretty good job of regulating the stuff that's going on. But something like, gee, who, who thought of that? And what's next? And so I do think you get... Um, kind of closer and closer to conduct that's going to be harder to ignore. And it's possible that the rules will change. But right now we see that the same as we see a written communication that's allowed. And does the state bar, does your office regulate um, TV advertising, lawyer advertising? Yes. How, does, how does your office get involved in that? 
Well, most of the time, well, all the time, somebody has to bring it to our attention um, that there's something on a radio ad or a TV ad that they believe violates the rules of professional conduct. And what we typically do, we've sort of got a standing um, directive from our disciplinary board to first contact the lawyer who's responsible for the ad and try to get them to fix any problems with it. And believe it or not, that works a lot of the time. Um, if there is something in a, a statement that's misleading or a statement that's not true, basically that those are the standards. It has to be true, it has to be untrue or misleading for us to um, regulate it. And you know, things, opinions differ about what that means, what's misleading and what's not. People will make statements about um, um, I've never lost a case. And you find out that they've never tried a case. <laughs> and so, yeah. I've never lost a case. I settle everything. You know, is that misleading? It, yeah, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. We actually took a case like that to the board at one point. And they said, you know, you got to find clients who were unhappy with the way their cases were resolved to say that that's really misleading. And maybe the client wanted their case settled, didn't want to go to trial. So, you know, it's, it's all a matter of degree on this stuff. And we, when we get grievances about what's in a lawyer ad on TV or the radio or a billboard, we do have rules that we make the ad comply with. But um, because of that Supreme Court case that Lester was talking about, it's, it's a fairly low threshold. And if everything, if there's nothing that we can point at and say, this isn't true, then um, we're probably not going to be able to do a whole lot in terms of a disciplinary case. What, what would you say is the hardest part of your, your job as general counsel? I'm frustrated um, that, that we can't fix things for people sometimes. I mean, there, there are a lot of situations where a member of the public has kind of been done wrong, if that's a legal term, <laughs> by a client where something bad has happened, where if the lawyer hadn't been a sloppy lawyer or a bad lawyer or an inattentive lawyer, things would have come out better for the client. And on this side of it, there's nothing to be done to, to fix it for the person. And that, that really is kind of heartbreaking, um, particularly where it's a lawyer who isn't gonna be able to do anything in terms of um, sort of a malpractice type payment. I mean, people are just out of luck sometimes. and um, the randomness of that is is a shame, but a lot of times it disproportionately affects the people who can least afford that their money got stolen and they're not going to get all of it back. Um, so, so that I think is the hardest part is just letting people know we can't make it right for them. We aren't a court. We can't change the outcome of their case. We can't give them back all their money, although we've got a client security fund that can reimburse sometimes some money that people have lost from a lawyer's dishonest conduct. If it was $300,000, we can't give you back all of it. And there may not be a remedy for what has happened to them. So that's just a shame. And um, I think that's the hardest part. On the, on the other side of that coin, what's the favorite part of your job? Um, I, like, I like the discretion that we have to try to fix things. Um, and to give a lawyer a break. If a lawyer really was going through a bad stretch and um, something bad happened or um, to help a client find um, 
a, a way to make the best of whatever's going on. I, it's, um, I mean, it's probably what you guys like about your jobs, just the feeling that you're, you're helping people in a way that only a lawyer can help people. So, um, you know, that makes you proud. Yeah, I thought for for a minute there you're going to say you like like the best thing was uh, hanging out with people like Lester and me. That's right. Lawyers are fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think you know everybody. Lester likes to talk about lawyers, lawyers, and that kind of thing. But I, I know exactly what he means. It really is. Um, I just I said it already. Lawyers are generally thoughtful, smart people. Um, they're great storytellers and just sort of fun to be around. I was thinking earlier when uh, the, uh, you, you were talking, we were talking about uh, uh, lawyers and sort of, you know, different political views and, and things like this. Um, I'm reminded there's a great story in Georgia about when Senator Sam Nunn got elected to the Senate. And Herman Talmadge had been there forever. And Senator Talmadge said, uh, well, now, Sam, I hope you're answering all your mail that you get. And uh, I'm sure you know, to the, the, the bar, you know, gets a, gets a ton of mail, you know, from, from folks. And he said, Oh yeah. Said, uh, I answered except for those nuts, you know, that, that, that write us, you know, from time to time. And he says, good God, you gotta, you gotta answer. You gotta answer that too, Sam. The nut boat's worth about 10% in Georgia. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, but it, it strikes me that the bar probably has its 10%. We've got our 10% of nuts as lawyers, you know, oh too, gosh, and, yeah. and probably don't want to be judged by those. But uh, uh, I, I just think y'all do a, a really great job uh, of, uh, of, of regulating the profession. And when I think you know, I think back when I was president and Robin knows, you know, you're kind of on the speaker's trail and you always get questions about the disciplinary system. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I've had three complaints filed against me, all of which were dismissed, uh, two of them before I ever even knew they had been filed because they didn't state any uh, claim. And so I, I always... I, I didn't hesitate to tell people that because I didn't feel like it was some knock on me. It was uh, it, it was just the process of being in the arena and some folks are going to take shots at you, you know, from time to time. But, hey, we've got a system that works and it, you know, and it worked for me. And I think it works. I think it works for most people. And so uh, I, I think you do a really great job there, Paul. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I second that. Um, I'd like to know and give you an opportunity to, to, to tell us what you, you've practiced for a long time, 30 well, I'm, I've practiced 33, so you've probably practiced 35 years, maybe. Um, I don't know. What's the, in 82, so. what's the highlight? Of, what's the highlight? Do you have a highlight of your career? Is there I, one know, thing I you like can put up? Yeah, it really does make you think, well, what is the highlight? And what's the low light? I mean, I, I cannot come up with one moment where I was saying where I thought, oh, this is why, you know, yeah. I got lots of little moments where I'm like, this is why I wanted to be a lawyer, but I can't think of one. You know, I, I was really proud to be president of both the Georgia Association of Black Women Attorneys and the Atlanta Bar. But I feel like that's kind of selfish to say, well, that was a highlight of my career, but it, but it was. But I think it should be more about actual lawyering. And I can't really come up with one. Well, your whole your whole career really speaks volumes about what an incredible lawyer you are and how great you've been for us, for the state bars, general counsel and, and all of your positions. So 
we definitely um, appreciate your service to the state bar and, and their lawyers of Georgia and and then to the people of Georgia. Uh, you. You, hats off to you. We appreciate you. Um, Paula, one of the last questions that we always ask every guest, and I, I gave you a heads up so you'd have time to think about it, is what is your definition of justice? And that, that was another good thought question. And, you know, it's funny because my predecessor, Bill Smith, used to hate it when I said I just wanted things to be fair. He's like, nobody guarantees anything's going to be fair. And it's like, well, they don't, but it should be. <laughs> and I really, I don't know, I guess that for me, and, and for me what that means is sort of a level playing field. That means, you know, in a state like Georgia where, you know, I'm now part of the good old boy system. I have to admit it. I know all the lawyers in the state and I knew their daddies at this point because I've gotten older. Um, and, and you see how that looks to somebody who's not a part of it, to a regular citizen coming into a courtroom where everybody seems to know each other and their buddies and you're the stranger and things don't go your way. And you're just convinced it wasn't fair. And so I, I, I don't, know what we what we do about that but for me justice is fairness and a level playing field and people being treated equally and playing by the rules that mean that they're colorblind um all of that very good i, I, I just want to say you know I, I i think it was either at the uh, the beginning of my term or just before my term as president uh began that uh, uh, I was able to uh, uh, hire Paula Frederick as the general counsel after being the deputy oh, general are. counsel. And I, I just want you to know, Paula, I count that as one of one of my greatest successes that <laughs> that we that we, we we got you and have been able to hold on to you and the, and the tremendous job you do. Well, I love my job. So thanks a lot. I forgot that was you. He preached me into heaven that day, Rob. And I tell you that board Anybody who is about to say, no, we, we think we need to do a wider search or cast a wider net after Lester got through praising me, they all voted unanimously to approve me. So thank you for that, Lester. Uh, yeah, I, I was able to use my lawyer superpowers and I, yeah. they, didn't get me with, they didn't get me with kryptonite. That, that, Le you know, Lester's, so. Lester's pretty precise guy, but he definitely, yeah, he definitely got that one right. No question yeah. about it. Well, well, thank you, Paula. Guys, I enjoyed this. Yeah, thank you, Paula, for spending some time with us this morning. Again, we've been talking with Ms. Paula Frederick, General Counsel of the State Bar of Georgia. You may learn more about the General Counsel's Office on the Bar's website, gabar.org. Thanks again, Paula. Lester, do you uh, have something to share with our listeners in the the area of the law that's really, really interesting this week? I do. Um, I believe this was from uh, five days ago that uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, uh, the recent uh, appointee, recently appointed, uh, nominated and confirmed uh, by, by President Trump, uh, declined uh, to block Indiana University's vaccine mandate uh, for students coming in this fall. Uh, th there was a lower court opinion uh, from the, uh, from the uh, Seventh Circuit, uh, which basically said that uh, vaccine requirements have been common in this nation and stressed that the school's policies allow exemptions for those who have medical issues 
uh, related to the vaccine or religious uh, objections. Uh, so I, 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 I want to sort of applaud that decision, not from a, well, I, I think I probably could applaud it from a public health standpoint, uh, but I don't want to do what we were talking with Paula earlier about lawyers uh, giving opinions on, on things outside <laughs> the law. But uh, I do think, you know, I can remember as early as uh, as elementary school having to have vaccinations for certain diseases before I could go into uh, go to elementary school. Uh, you know, folks like you and I, Robin, who have sent kids off to college know that, you know, there were certain vaccines and medications uh, and treatments that you had to have in order to be admitted and uh, matriculate at a particular college. And uh, I, I think from a standpoint of the law that uh, that is the correct decision unless you're going to, you know, throw out, uh, uh, you know, probably 50 years of uh, jurisprudence on that, that question. And I know that some people want to make the coronavirus vaccine uh, a controversial political issue. Uh, we've got a lot of folks out there who, uh, to quote Spoon River Anthology, you know, are, are pickers of rags and the rubble of spites and wrongs. Uh, but uh, I, I think this was a correct decision. The, the full court may weigh in on that decision uh, later on. But uh, I applaud the Seventh Circuit and uh, I applaud uh, uh, newly confirmed uh, Justice Barrett on her decision on that. Great point. And I encourage everyone to get vaccinated. When the vaccine first became available, uh, I was so happy because I thought, great, courts will be back open. We'll have jury trials again. This it's done. It's over. Yet here we are in August and um, and we're we're really some courts are open, but just barely. Uh, I haven't had a jury trial yet since 2019 for COVID. My, I've got a jury trial set for October 11 in Cobb County. Looking forward to that. Nothing derails that. But if everybody would get vaccinated, we could get back to trying jury trials. I, I, I want to add uh, something uh, to that, uh, which is. And I, and I think particularly for members of the public who uh, don't like jury trials or they have to they get called on jury duty, but they don't actually get selected for jury duty. And uh, so like like you, Robin, you know, I hadn't had a hadn't had a jury trial in the last couple of years, you know, for for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, but we did restart jury trials in civil cases here in Bartow County, uh, where where my office is. And so, uh, uh, interestingly enough, I, I don't think I had, I didn't even settle very many cases, you know, over that, that past two years. But when I, uh, and this wasn't even my case, it was another case, it was a case, uh, another lawyer, another group of lawyers asked me to try for them. And we, uh, we got number one on the trial calendar for Monday morning. And on Thursday, I get a call from another lawyer. And by Saturday, we had the case resolved. Then I had another one. We go to a pretrial conference. We're going to be number two uh, on Monday. Two days after the pretrial conference, the case settles. And so uh, the presence of jurors, where they actually have to decide a case or not, just the availability of jurors to get cases decided, it, you know, that's that's what keeps the wheels of justice turning. And uh, it's it's uh, we ask that question every time about what is what is justice. Uh, I, I think I can say injustice is certainly not having the opportunity to have somebody decide your case and reach a decision in it. 
And uh, that's that's a big part of what we've been through in the last couple of years. Thanks, Lester. My my story I want to share with you is about a an actual jury verdict that occurred in California. They have begun um, opening their courts and having jury trials. And this was a whopper that I want to share with our listeners. Um, it was a $15 million verdict in a landmark case over uh, frozen embryos that were destroyed accidentally because of a malfunction in the, the tank that that would freeze the embryos. And the case was against Chart Industries that manufactured the storage tank and against Pacific Fertility Center um, where women could store their eggs and have them implanted in vitro fertilization. And this was one of the first times this has ever happened in, in a jury verdict. And there were only five plaintiffs. Now, thousands of eggs were destroyed in this situation where the tanks malfunctioned. So out of the thousands that of potential plaintiffs that have cases and are bringing cases, they selected five uh, plaintiffs whose eggs were destroyed. Uh, and so Five plaintiffs got 15 million, and behind that 15 million dollar verdict are thousands more to come. I think there were 3,500 eggs lost, so lots of more claims coming. It's a landmark case, uh, and it's interesting to me because I, I have a frozen embryo accidentally destroyed case now, so this is very interesting to me that. Um, in the wild, wild west of in vitro fertilization and fertility clinics, a jury, which, by the way, there is no regulation on on frozen embryos, no federal regulation, uh, no one, no oversight over them. It's the wild, wild west uh, until a jury gets involved. And when a jury gets involved and sees the conduct, the jury does the right thing and awards damages. Now, to some of these families who, who lost their frozen eggs, those are the only eggs they ever had or ever will have. Uh, they will never be able to have uh, their their um, child, their genetic child, uh, again because of this this negligence, which is overwhelming. And uh, I was telling my niece, who is 36, and she was telling me a lot of her friends her age are getting their eggs frozen. And I told her about my case where uh, a woman's last two eggs were accidentally destroyed and the look on her face is just overwhelming. And that's what I think this jury in California said is this is this is uh, this is unbelievable and leave it to a jury uh, of 12 people, the smallest form of local government known to man to do justice. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the 3,500 cases. Um, but hats off to those lawyers. It was attorney Dina Sharp and Amy Zimmon in San Francisco, uh, and they've got more to come. I'm, I'm curious, was that uh, on a on a tort like negligence basis or was it just a, a straight breach of contract? You know, you contracted to, to keep these things, keep these eggs safe and uh, and, and failed. Yeah, I, I don't know precisely the answer. My guess is it's a little bit of both, both breach of contract, but also intentional infliction of emotional distress and all those kind of tort claims that would naturally, naturally right. go with with that. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Great show today. Really sure enjoyed was. talking to Paula. Yeah, it's great to have her. She's a great friend and a great attorney. And we're we're lucky to have her on the state bar uh, general counsel's office. 
All right, Lester, I don't have anything else. Do you? I do not. I do All not. Right. Okay. Stay stay safe and say, stay dry today. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. So I guess until next time, we'll see, see you, in, you court. in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.